Praise God. Well, we're going to start, as I promised, our new teaching series uh, that, to be candid, when um, I thought about it, I decided it really was more for me than you, but you just get to listen in on it. Um, I, I just believe somebody needs to untangle grace. And, I, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, in fact, I'm calling the series, if you want to flash it up on the screen, Embrace the Grace. It's really understanding God's favor. You know, grace is the cornerstone of the gospel. I, I, I believe probably everyone that's hung around church just for a little bit has heard the word grace at some point in their life. That's Christianity 101, in my opinion. In fact, it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that when Jesus showed up, He was the expression of the Father and that He was full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. So we're not going to get very far in understanding or receiving God's plans, God's purposes, or God's ways without really understanding grace. Everyone say grace. And you can say, I need grace. You sure do. I need grace as well. But having said that, many of you also know, if you've been around me for a while, that my personal take on much of what we hear today as teaching on God's grace, I think, and, and you're going to have to stay with me for these next few weeks, I think some of it's been twisted. I think it's been left incomplete. And most of the time, I think when we talk about grace, there's an idea that pops in people's minds, but it may not be the whole, the whole concept. And if you don't get the whole thing you aren't going to get the, the benefits or understand the responsibilities of grace. Now, I understand that I'm not, I've not been called to be the heresy detector. I don't have a badge in my back pocket that says heresy sheriff. I don't, I don't have one of those. Everybody doesn't have to live up to my personal views of what the Scripture teaches and what it says. I get it. I, I understand and I get it that there are good people, godly people, who can have different views. Do we know that by now? That, that you can read the same Bible and you can come up with different views. And they're legitimate. Now some, they say they read their Bible, but they didn't read the whole thing. But I understand that you can read the whole thing and you can come up with a few different views and, and they're still scriptural and you can still love Jesus. And, and I'm just here to say out loud, I can live with that variety. But, but I do think that there's sort of like an elephant in the room. Have you ever heard that phrase? There's an elephant in the room. It's like there's something everybody sort of knows and, and they may not be comfortable with, but there's this elephant in the room and, and nobody ever wants to talk about it. And, and I just feel like I've been born to talk about elephants in the room. I think there's an elephant in the church. And I decided for me that, that I just wanted to delve into this area again. I don't know how it is in your life, but it, it works that way in my life on occasion. You know, sometimes you hear people say things one way for so long. I've often said this. If you say a lie long enough and say it's truth, people will believe the lie. If they holler it long enough, we just think, well, because it's being hollered, it must be true. Or just because it's published in a book, it must be true. Or just because it's in the newspaper, it must be true. And it works on all of us. And, you know, I hear things and after a while I start asking myself the question, maybe you're the maybe you're the hair in heresy, Pastor Baird. Maybe you're the one that doesn't get it. Maybe you're the one that that mind is all messed up and you hear something one way long enough and, and it works on you like that. And so I decided that I was just going to go back to the scripture and I'm going to get it straight. If I'm the one that's off, then it's time I got back right again. However, if we find out that others may be off, then it's time we understood what God was really saying. I uh, was reminded of a story. Some of you will know this story instantly of an old tale uh, by a story writer by the name of Hans Christian Andersen. And the name of the story is entitled The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, it's an interesting title. It says the emperor's new clothes because in honest with you, they should have called the little vignette the emperor who has no clothes. 
Because that really is what the story is all about. And I'll just give you a quick synopsis. The story goes like this, is that there was a king who just was infatuated with his wardrobe. He was just enamored with his clothes and he loved beautiful clothes. And, and he had this whole concept that if you were, if you were intelligent and you were powerful and, 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 and you were sort of an elite, that you would have wonderful clothes. And he was enamored with his clothes. Until one day, two, two scoundrel tailors show up. And they decide that they're going to take advantage of the king. And, and they promise the king a certain, a certain apparel, a certain a certain look, a certain clothes that they would create for him especially. And, and that nobody would be able to see the clothes unless they too were intelligent and bright and, and, and of the, the caliber of people that he would want to hang around. And so these two scoundrels convinced the king to uh, allow them to make this, this uh, uh, outfit of special threads and special uh, fabric in order that he might he might be this amazingly dressed king that, that people of great taste would recognize. And the story goes, as you probably can surmise, is that they really weren't sewing anything. They just were pretending to sew this in, invisible suit. And they put on this invisible suit on, on the king. And he's standing there, you know, naked as a jaybird. With these two scoundrels just going on and on about how beautiful he looked. But of course, the, the king didn't want to say anything because if he said anything, it would reveal that maybe he wasn't intelligent and he wasn't all that. And he didn't want anybody to know that because this set of clothes could only be seen by those who were, you know, of the elite. And, and so he wasn't going to say anything. And so the scoundrels got their money. And so the king goes out for a parade. And during this parade, all the people knew what was going on and none of them were going to say anything against the king. And so the king's riding around town with no clothes on. Until finally there's a kid in the crowd who says the thing no one else wants to say. He says, hey, the king has no clothes. And then all of a sudden, it's like everybody goes, yeah, exactly. The king has no clothes clothes. And I started to think about that, that fairy tale or fable or vignette or whatever you would call it. And as I began to read it, I thought to myself and listen very carefully. I thought that is such a parable of the church. Such a parable of the church. If, if you think not, let me just read you a passage of scripture, which I, I think is really interesting. It's in the book of the Revelation, chapter three. I want to read to you a little bit of the church of Laodicea for just a minute. There are varying ways of interpreting Revelation chapter 3, but a lot of people believe that the Laodicean church, which was the last church that John writes to, was actually a picture of the last day's church. And some of the things that, that we would be challenged with and that some of the things we would be uh, uh, rebuked for or chastised for. So in Revelation 3.14, listen to this. It says to the angel of the church of the Laodicean write, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. In other words, he says, I don't like the fact that you're just lukewarm or you're tepid. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, the Lord says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now listen to verse 17 here. Interesting. Because you say I am rich, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, that you're miserable, that you're poor, that you're blind. And what's the last word? It's interesting. He says, listen, this is, this is the church I'm talking to. You're walking around and you think you're all that and a bag of chips. You think you've got it all together. And I'm just telling you that you don't even understand that you don't have any clothes on. You're naked. And he tells them in verse 16 to buy from him gold refined in the fire that you could be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And then anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke. Isn't that cool? If God loves you, he rebukes you. He says, I'll chasten. Therefore, be zealous and what? Repent. Now listen to me. 
Is he talking to the world? Who's he talking to? He's talking to a church. He says, be zealous and repent. Then in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Back to our fable. You see, I believe that that in these last days. That the church. Especially here in America. Is walking around and honestly, they believe that they're clothed in righteousness. They believe that they have the cloak, the white robe of righteousness, and they're clothed in it. And they're walking in this this cloak that God has given them. That's what they think. But they don't understand that some scoundrels have come along. And these scoundrels, which the Scripture calls teachers, who in last days will solicit people with itching ears, telling them fables and lies, having their consciences seared, as with a red hot iron. And let me just say, I think in the church today that we have bought some things from scoundrels. Hear me now. I'm not saying I understand there's variety and I, I, I am not any man's judge, but I'm just simply saying that there's a conception that exists in the body of Christ today that leaves us with the feeling that somehow or another, I'm talking now the body at large, that we're clothed in righteousness, but I'm telling you we're naked. You say, you're just tough, pastor. No, I'm not. I'm just reading the Bible. That's what God says. He says that that you think you're one way. You think you're covered. But he says, I counsel you. Get white garments from me. Because you're naked. You're naked. It's interesting that the last line I was reading that Hans Christian Andersen story. And the last line in his story says this. Listen to this. This is about the king. It says he thought it better to continue the procession under the illusion that anyone who couldn't see his clothes was either stupid or incompetent. Folks, I'm telling you, we are living in a day where so many people are living under illusions that they're clothed in righteousness. And if anyone were to challenge that, They would just consider us to be old-fashioned, legalistic, stupid, out of date. You're a dinosaur. You're from an era gone by. It's not the way it works today. And I'm telling you, God is looking at us saying, I want to clothe you in white garments. I want you to understand my favor. I want you to be able to be clothed. I want your fervency. I want these things. But we're going to have to understand exactly what all of that means. And it starts with understanding Grace, And I've called this message, the first message, the church's new clothes. The church's new clothes. Maybe we should have called it, the church has no clothes. Now, in order to understand grace and to truly get clothed again in righteousness, I want to start at the beginning. I know for many of you, this will be a review. But uh, let's make sure we're all on the same page. Let me give you a quick definition of grace. The definition of grace, the Greek word is charis, charis, and uh, how do I want to say this? At times it can be a difficult word to translate because it's used rather flexibly through all the Bible, but this is probably the most notable definitions and most of the ways we've come to understand it. The definition of grace is this, it is unmerited favor or kindness, an undeserved gift, or getting something Getting what you don't deserve. Now, don't confuse grace with mercy. A lot of people confuse grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Are you following me? Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Now, it's interesting, the word charis, for those of you that are long-time Christians and may have grown up in the charismatic renewal. The word charis is translated gift. And, and during that era of the renewal, there, were, there was an emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit. And so, so charis, like spiritual gifts, is charis, gifts, charis. So gifts and grace are very similar. 
in their concept and understanding. Now, if you follow the word grace through the Old Testament, the word grace in the Old Testament is mostly used as favor. So if you read all the Old Testament and you see the word grace, you could almost interject the word favor. That's why oftentimes you will see interactions go on in the Old Testament where somebody will be talking to a king and they'll say, if I have found grace in your sight. You see that over and over again. If I have found grace in your sight. And what that literally means is if I found favor in your sight, if, if, if you're feeling benevolent toward me, if you're feeling kind toward me. But as you begin to see the development of grace in the Bible, it's interesting that, that there are numerous attributes that are linked to grace, grace, which I suppose in part may be why we don't understand grace as well as we think we understand it. You see, I have found this out. I have found generally that people and sometimes even teachers will emphasize what they like and conveniently ignore what they may not like. Can you say amen? Isn't that what we do as people? I mean, there are certain things in this Bible I love. Isn't that true? Boy, we can go to some chapters and I'll just eat them up. Oh, oh that's good stuff. But there are some things in this book, to be quite honest with you, in my flesh, I don't know that I appreciate it all that much. Come on, let's be honest. And we do that. I mean, that's not, that's not necessarily a, a clandestine evil thing. It's just the nature of human beings. We like, we like the good stuff, and I really don't want to hear all the bad stuff or tough stuff or challenging stuff. And so what happens is, is that for many of us, we've turned our Christian life into literally cutting and pasting the Scriptures. We continually read the good stuff, but we don't read the other stuff. And can I just tell you, if you don't get all the stuff, you're sick. Because it's the whole counsel of God. And what happens is, is sometimes I think we do that just because it's our nature. I think sometimes we do that just because we just want to avoid an uncomfortable truth. And sometimes I think we twist things even knowing we're doing it just so it can fit our own purposes. Now, I'm going to stop here and, and I'm going to take a minute because I need to do this out loud. I'm going to take a moment and make, for me, an attitude confession. You get to be my priest today. How about that? See, to my detriment, there have been times, to my detriment, through the years, I've been irritated. That may surprise you. I can't even believe you'd ever get irritated, Pastor. Oh, come live with me. There have been times I've been irritated. Numerous things, but I have been especially irritated at how people will twist the true gospel of grace. And to be candid, when I know that they're doing it, I've, I've oftentimes reacted. I've reacted, and the Bible says that you're to gently exhort. Now, my gentle exhortation may be a little louder than most, but, but that's what the Scripture tells me I'm to do. And I was put off. And, 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 and understand that, that I'm not trying to justify the spirit that was in me. I'm just trying to sort of just say out loud what was going on in me because until you begin to identify what goes on inside of you, you'll never get over it. And, and, and I just would get irritated because people were twisting the Scriptures. And we've called it many things through the years. We've called it sloppy agape. Or we've called it greasy grace. Or we've called it sin and religion. And, and, and it just would irritate me that people would embrace the name of the Lord, but they'd live like heathen. And, and, and I'm not dealing with them yet. I'm just dealing with me. I, you know what? You can be right in doctrine and wrong in spirit. I'm just going to remind everybody, you can be right as rain, but if you're wrong in your spirit, you're wrong. And there is a grace, and, and, and there's a grace heresy in the church, and it presumes on the goodness of God. And to be candid, I, I started to identify my feelings. I was offended for the Lord. And you know what? It was like the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me as I began to just get into all of this again. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. And it was as if he said, Kevin, I never asked you to take up an offense for me. People twist and abuse all sorts of things. And God sees it all the time. They do it for personal gain, for personal privilege. How many of you know people have twisted prosperity? 
I mean, we've twisted prosperity to mean we're all going to be millionaires so we can all retire and go to the Caymans. And that's how we've twisted prosperity. We've twisted prosperity simply to feed our flesh and build bigger barns and say, soul, take thine ease. And we've twisted prosperity and we've turned it into something that has made us selfish. Now hear me, there's a prosperity in the Scriptures that God says will give us 30, 60, 100 fold. But it's not just for us to just build these silly things and toys and all the stuff. He does it in order that we can learn to be givers. To whom much is given, much is required. But people twist that stuff because it appeals to what feels good. People twist authority. I know they do. They've twisted it and abused people or abused a congregation if it was a pastor. But yet congregations have used it to abuse pastors. We all have abused authority. But that doesn't mean that there's not true authority in the Scripture. We've twisted healing. We've twisted miracles. We've twisted faith. We've twisted just about everything that could be twisted. And here's the key. Whether it's you or whether it's me, we cannot react to error by avoiding the truth or feeling like I don't want to be associated with the problem. I'm going to share this with you because I know it to be true because I've visited with, with too many pastors through the years. Our problem today is, listen, we, we, we have pastors and teachers who grew up in legalism. Now, we grew up in legalism too. But what happens is when you grow up in legalism, they think that in order to somehow break free from their roots, instead of reading what the Scripture says, they react to it. And so they react to the error of legalism by teaching license and not true liberty. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because, because, all right, there were legalisms. We grew up with, with, you know, my wife grew up with women couldn't wear open-toed shoes and they couldn't wear a sleeveless dress. And if you painted your face, you know, you were Jezebel. I mean, we lived with, if it touched the skin, it's sin. You take off your jewelry. I mean, we lived, you weren't going to movies, you weren't going to bowling alleys, you weren't going to roller skating rinks. You just about couldn't do anything because if it was fun, it was sin. When people come up and charge me with legalism, I look at them and say, dude, you don't even know what legalism is. You don't even get it. And there are people like us that grew up in it. And, and what it is is that we were so constricted and confined and tied down that we react to that. And all of a sudden, since we don't want to be that, we'll just let everything be okay. Are you following me now? And anytime someone suggests that some activity in your life may not honor God, we instantly go back to, I'm not going back to that legalism stuff. But you see, you got to realize we're not talking about legalism. We're just talking about license and, and, and you getting a conviction in an area that God's touching. Now you're following me. See, the same thing with goofy things. I know pastors, I grew up watching so many goofy things in both the holiness movement and the charismatic renewal. I saw more goofiness than, than you can imagine. I mean, I saw people just weird stuff in church. Just stuff, and it wasn't God. Now, I know God will do strange things. But you have a sensor inside called discernment. And sometimes out of my discernment, I knew for a fact that wasn't God. That was just weird. It was goofy. It, it turned people off. It ran people off. And I know that there are pastors that grew up and they saw all that goofy stuff. And when it was their turn to be a pastor, they said to themselves, we're not going to have any of that stuff. And they reacted to it. And so what they said was, I'll tell you what, we'll keep the Holy Spirit stuff for another time, but we're going to keep everything on Sunday morning just sort of calm and antiseptic and just keep it sort of just, just, just real even keeled. And what happens is, is that they've reacted to an error instead of getting on their knees again and getting in the Word and beginning to say, oh God, what's the truth? Now, listen to me. It's happened in this area as well. We've had people who have, 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 have put on us works, works, and I'm going to talk about this in just a second, works righteousness, and, and they've laid on us heavy burdens, and they've laid on us, laid on us heavy expectations, and, 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 and then all of a sudden we're sprung out of that. And when we're sprung out of it, instead of understanding true grace, we begin to walk under this lascivious license that presumes on the grace of God. And we just sort of walk around thinking, well, God's cool with me even though I'm sinning left and right. 
Now, we'll elaborate on that even more. But having given you that illustration, I'm just simply confessing out loud that as I've looked at all of these things, I want to be sure that I don't react to those who have twisted the gospel of grace and then the pendulum in my life gets swung back over here where we throw on people heavy loads and heavy burdens that aren't in the Scripture either. See, you can swing either side of the pendulum. The key isn't to be a pendulum swinger. It's to walk under the whole counsel of God. But having said all of that, it still means we have to get to the truth. Because if we get grace wrong, then what we become is the Laodicean church. We think we're clothed in righteousness. But God says, you're naked. Listen to me. Jesus will, in Matthew 7, it tells us, Jesus will look at people who will come to Him and they will say, Lord, Lord, may we enter into the kingdom. And He'll say no. And, and, and they'll go, wait, 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 wait. I was casting out devils in Your name. I was prophesying in Your name. I was doing these wonderful things in Your name. And Jesus will look at this group and He will say, I never knew you. Now, this is the tough word, but we'll get to the good stuff. But the tough word is this. We can't make up the rules or the attributes of grace. There's going to be a people who will stand before God and say, I'm cool. And Jesus is going to say, no, 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 you're not. And then they're going to look at who to blame. And there's going to be no one to blame. But here's the good news. The good news is God gives us His Word and He looks at a Laodicean church and He says, I counsel you now to begin to purchase that which will get you clothed again. Listen to me, folks. Whether you like me or not, my highest priority is for you to get your righteous garbs on. We need to get some clothes on. Get some clothes on. All right. And hear me, Jesus isn't knocking here. Revelation 3 and 20, which is really interesting to me because we use Revelation 3 and 20 to lead people into a relationship with Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, which really is interesting to me because he ain't knocking at the world's door. He's knocking at the door of the church. And he's saying, will you let me in? Will you let me in? I want to let him in. So let's talk about the place of grace. All right, turn to the book of Ephesians real quick. Guys, I hope you have plugged those in because I'm going to use. Thank you very much. I appreciate my tech guys back there. You're going to help me so much in this message this morning. Let's talk about grace for just a minute. We're setting foundations. Hey, keep coming, man. We're going to get to some incredible, over-the-top, amazing things that God wants to do in your life. Exceeding abundant things beyond that which you could ask or think. But we can't get there until we lay it all on the table. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says this, for by grace. In fact, let's just read this together off the screen. Can we do that together? Ready? Let's read. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, I believe every Christian ought to have that memorized. It's an important verse. Because this is where we start. Grace, grace will be released all through your Christian life. It's not just a one-time deal. It will be released all through your life. But it starts at the moment you're saved. And if we can begin to understand that what happens when we're saved, then you'll begin to understand how God will work in your life all through your life. Because if His number one priority works a certain way, you can pretty much count on that His other priorities will work fairly similarly. So the verse tells us some things that I want to just deconstruct and explain in order for you to understand at a beginning point what God's done. If you're saved and uh, we go through this, it'll be a review. For the rest, there may be some who've never considered some things and, and this will be a glad morning for you because you'll be able to receive the grace of God and you'll be able to know for sure that, that God is working and operating in your life. Like I said, if I can understand how this works, I'll get the rest. So let me give you five quick concepts. And if I don't get through all of this, I'm just going to stop at the appropriate time and we'll pick it up again next week. But these are five concepts that we've got to get in everyone's life if you want to embrace the grace. Number one, 
Initiate versus responding. Initiate versus responding. Grace is God's side of the equation. I'll say that again. Grace is God's side of the equation. He is the one who initiates his plan in our life. John 6, post it, guys. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me, what? And I'll raise him up on the last day. Keep that there. Keep that there. Nobody can come to God. Listen, nobody can come to God unless God draws them. How does he draw them? Well, he draws them, obviously, through his Holy Spirit. So, so he's the one drawing. He's the one initiating. He's the one pulling you to himself. Go to the next passage. It says, and Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will what? Draw. I will draw all peoples unto myself. Now, this is so important. It may be 101, but hear me. It starts, all of the Christian life starts with him, not you. Now listen to me, this is really, really important because this is just how we get messed up. There's a bumper sticker, you've heard me say this before. There's a bumper sticker out there that says this, I found God. Can I just share this with you? God wasn't lost. He wasn't the one that was lost. So really, you didn't find God. He found you. Now, I understand how this works experientially because you're clueless. The Bible says you are blind. You're in darkness. You don't even sometimes get what's going on. In your mind, you just tripped into church one day because you thought maybe you ought to get back to church because your life's falling apart. And you were sitting there. You listened to a message. There was an invitation that was given. You walked down because you knew life was breaking apart and there was something inside of you that was just saying, oh, you know, I need to get my life right. And, and so you presented yourself. You prayed prayers. And God touched you. And I understand how at that moment you would say to yourself, glory, I found God today. I understand how you would come to that statement, but let me just clue us all in. It was God who was drawing you in that car. It was God who put your eyes in the phone book and you saw the yellow page ad. It was God who caused your path to cross with that coworker who invited you to come to that church. It was God who walked with you into the door and sat with you in the seat. And when the invitation was given, it wasn't you who thought you could do it. It was God saying, I'm drawing you. You need me. He's the one that initiates these things. You didn't choose him as much as he chose you. We were blind. We were helpless. But the grace of God, is this not cool? The grace of God reached out to you and began to draw you to himself. He initiated that. You say, well, why is that important? It's important because many people live under this deception. Listen, that they can get right with God and choose God whenever it's convenient for them. That's a deception. I've seen it for years. People will often say, well, you know what? I, it's just not the right time. This isn't the moment. I'm just going to wait. I'm kind of a young person. I'm just going to sow my oats for a few years. And I know when I get older and when I'm on down the road and I've kind of got a settled life and I can understand why this would be important, but I just want to sow some oats and I just want to live life and I, I want to experience life and, and, and I'll take care of it on down the road. Can I tell you that is a deception because what you're betting on is that somehow God's drawing doesn't stop. How do you know you'll be able to do that? Maybe, maybe by that time, the scripture tells us you'll turn over to a reprobate mind and you'll not even know the drawing of God anymore. You see, you can't keep the scripture. We'll talk about resisting the grace of God and frustrating the grace of God until there comes a moment like Saul of old, who there came a moment that God wouldn't even speak to him anymore. And it wasn't his choice. It was taken out of his hands. That's the one part of Americanized Christianity that we have totally lost. We, we, we don't look at people anymore and say, now is the time, today is the day. If God's drawing you, it means this is the moment. You're playing with fire to say, I, I, I'll just wait till another time. 
That's why when you sense his grace, and really his grace is his love, when you sense it maybe convicting you or drawing you, it's important that you respond to it. And you see, that's our part. We don't initiate this thing. I don't just wake up one day and say, okay, today's the day I'm going to serve the Lord. We, we don't have that opportunity. All I can do is respond. Respond to the grace of God. When the grace of God is there, I can respond. And so that's the first part of grace. He initiates, we respond. Number two, let's talk about working and receiving. Paul said that salvation by grace was a gift. How many of you like gifts? Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christmas person. I love gifts. I do. I mean, everybody loves gifts, don't they? I mean, you get a gift and it's like, I was at a wedding this past weekend and I was watching those gifts come in and there was something going, man, that's cool. All them gifts. The Bible says that salvation by grace is a gift. This gift is received. The Bible says it's received by faith. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's just something that's given to you. Now get this. Listen to me. God doesn't need you or me. He, 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 he doesn't look at you and say, wow, you know, I could really use you. I mean, you would really be helpful in the kingdom. Do you understand? God doesn't care. He will take the most despicable, outcast known to humanity and he will reach out to them and use them before he'll use the sharpest person. And, and by and large, that's what he does all the time. There's nothing you or I can do to impress him. It's impossible for you and I to be good enough to merit a relationship with God or be worthy enough to spend eternity with God. And the reason is, is because God is holy and we're not. That is why if you went before the Lord and he asked you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? And your answer was, well, you know, I've done a lot of good things. If you really think about it, I prayed on occasion. I've, I've gone to church. I, 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 I gave in that offering to the uh, uh, urban poor kids to go to school. I, you know, I did that. Uh, I, I fed some hungry people. I, oh, yeah, 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 those firemen. I gave to the Jerry Lewis telethon. That's right. I, I gave to that. And, and I, let me just tell you, I know, I know I'm better than my neighbor. Have you taken a look at my neighbor? Isn't it amazing? We'll always find somebody worse than us. It's all meaningless. Now, should we do good works? The answer is certainly. Good things are good things, no doubt. But that is not how you and I are saved. That is not how you and I get into a relationship with God. You see, then, there again, we want the rules to be our rules. I want to change the rules. I've decided the rules are that if you do all the good things I do, you're saved. And God says, you aren't making the rules because it didn't start with you, remember? It starts with Him. He makes the rules. And so as God draws us, as I mentioned... We must, by faith, which means we trust in the gift that's being presented to us. And that gift is not just, it's not just a fire insurance policy. That gift is Jesus. Jesus is the gift. A lot of people think, I may get back to this too, they think that somehow God just gave them a fire insurance policy and so they put their fire insurance policy in their pocket and they're good to go. But that's not what the gift is. The gift is the person of Jesus. He became the sacrifice so that you wouldn't be. We didn't deserve it, but he wants to exchange with us our sins in order that we can receive his righteousness. That was a gift. It was a gift. And it, it's a gift to whosoever will. Because God's grace is going out to whosoever will. And that grace as it goes out draws people. So John 3.16 says this. Post it, guys. For God so loved the world. Hear this. He loved us first. That he gave, that's the gift, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that good news? If you're saved, that's how you got saved. Working. You didn't work for it. You received it. Now, let's get to the interesting part here. Number three, transaction versus transformation. 
This is the twisted part. Everybody zero in. Everybody look at me right now, okay? Come on, you got to get this because I'm telling you, you're going to be on a broad road that's going to lead to death. And I'm trying to get you back on a narrow road which will lead to life. That's what the Scripture says. Transaction versus transformation. Some people view salvation like a shopping experience. Well, you need heaven. I need heaven. I don't have heaven. I need to be saved. I'm not saved. Preacher said I can't afford it. Nothing I can do to merit it. So, praise God, he's going to pick up the tab. So, I'll go get my salvation off the shelf. Anybody ever see that commercial, that insurance commercial, where they're picking off their insurance off the shelves? What's that, what's that company? Is that good? Geico? Progressive. Well, those progressive commercials, and they're picking their insurance for their motorcycle or their camper, and they're picking it off a shelf, and they, they go purchase it. Can I just share with you, in a lot of people's minds, that's kind of how they view getting saved. They sort of picked it off a shelf. They go up front to the checkout stand. Uh, uh, the checkout person scans it, and you can't afford it, so Jesus steps in, and he pays the tab for you. And so... You know, you bought your fire insurance or you bought your salvation and there you've got it right there. You keep it in your pocket. Hallelujah. I couldn't afford it, but I got it. Now listen, 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 listen. This is what the scripture calls imputed. Everybody say imputed. Imputed. It's imputed righteousness. What that means is, is that, is that you couldn't be righteous on your own and so... And so God, because of the exchange that took place, because he picked up the tab, he declares you. Everyone say declare. Say, I've been declared. I've been declared righteous. You were declared righteous because you couldn't pick up the tab. And that's why the moment, the moment you receive Jesus, there's a declaration of righteousness because you've had no opportunity even to be obedient. So if you were to die at that moment... You get to go to heaven. It's like the thief on the cross. He stole his whole life long. And at a moment, there was an imputed righteousness that came that he was able to go into heaven. Now, that's true. Imputed righteousness is true and it's biblical. But what people have done is this. Is that they picked up their fire insurance. They picked up their salvation. I've got it. I've been declared righteous. And then this is what they do. They go this. They go, Phew. Now I can do whatever I want because I got my paper. I can go live like I want, do like I want, speak like I want, act like I want. I can have any attitude I want. I can do anything I want because I've got my piece of paper. And so what happens is, is that they live exactly like the world. And, and you look at them and say, do you know Jesus? Have you been saved? And they go, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got my paper. And we look and we kind of go, yeah, well, uh, but, you know, the light. Hey, 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 I got my paper. I know what the Bible says about judging. <laughs> Don't judge me. I got my paper. And, you see, and, and, and we walk away and we're going, well, I don't get this. I don't, this doesn't make any sense to me. Listen, that's why Jesus even said you would know them by their what? Fruits. You see, there's a fruit to salvation. That's why in 1 John it says, it says, how can you say you love God when you do not do what he says? And you see, we're going to stand before God and we're going to go, I got my paper. And you got to understand, is, is de declared righteousness... Is that good? Yes. But you got to understand there's a fruit. Now, I know some some people, because of what you were trained in, are instantly going to say, oh, there he is. He's getting to works righteousness. No, I'm not. I'm getting to obedience. I don't think you can work for your salvation, but I'm here to tell you, if you've got salvation, there's an obedience feature in here that comes with it. See? Romans 1, verse 5. Just read this. I mean, the Bible will mess you up every time. Romans 1, verse 5. Listen to this. Oh, i got to put it on the screen. It says, through him we have received what? And apostleship, Paul says, for what? So you know why you received grace? It's so you could be obedient. Not so you could be lawless. 
There are many people who think, now that I've got my paper, it doesn't really matter what I do anymore. No, 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 no. You receive grace. If it's true grace, you've received grace for obedience. Now listen, it's true that we may all yet sin. I don't believe I'm, I'm, I'm sinlessly perfect. I don't believe that for a minute. But there's a part of grace that never gets taught. I told you about imputed grace, right? Imputed righteousness. But there's another feature that's called imparted. Everyone say impart. Imparted righteousness. And what that means is, is that, not, that I'm not only declared to be righteous, but there's been a change in my very being. Post Second Peter there real quick. Second Peter 1.4, it says, To which we've been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of what? Come on, say it. Partakers of what? Partakers of? So, here's the promise of God. That when I receive Him, I become a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, He now lives in me. And because he's in me, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Because he is in me, he has purposed me for victory. He has purposed me for triumph. He has purposed me to be more than a conqueror. It does not matter what temptation, what issue, what trial, what trouble, what challenge. It doesn't matter. I have been purposed to win. No sin can take me out. Not because I'm just declared that way, but because within me beats the nature of God that strengthens me to be victorious. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? You see, you're not the same old person. See, that's what we've been led to believe. I've got my piece of paper, but I'm ostensibly the same old person. I've got my fire insurance, but I'm just the same old person. No, you're not. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things. Everyone say all. They become new. They become new. So it's not impute or impart. It's impute and impart. Now listen to me very, very carefully. That is why this business of, of giving invitations, and you'll hear people say, well, you know what? Why don't you come try Jesus? Come try Jesus isn't biblical. You aren't test driving the master. It's not like you get to go to the store and you just pull this off and you get it transacted for, and if you don't like it, you can go get your money back. Oh, yeah, yeah, God paid for it anyway. But it's like I still get my money back. See, you didn't purchase anything. God purchased it. It was free and you would die eternally if he'd not done that for you. And Jesus, you see, you just don't try Jesus. Jesus, Jesus isn't a test drive. I'm telling you, Jesus isn't up there looking at you in this negotiation. We're not negotiating with the master. He is king. He is Lord. He is master. It's all it's an all or nothing deal. And when Jesus comes into your life by his very presence, what happens is, is that he begins to transform you into something you've never been before. And that's the difference, friends, between what we see today where people come and they make decisions, but they aren't receiving conversions. They're in their mind going, well, yeah, I'll try it. I'll get my piece of paper. You're right. I probably need to give this a try. But the truth of the matter is they've not opened up their heart to the grace of God that has allowed them to become a brand new person. I can share with you this morning that when I met Jesus, I was changed. I was not the same person anymore. My whole life was rearranged. My whole priorities got shifted and something substantial happened in my life. I can't explain it. I'm not sure I could articulate it well enough, but I know this. This, that when I met him, he rearranged me. Now, if you haven't experienced that, I got good news. You can. You can. I've got to hurry. License versus liberty. I'm going to spend more time on this later, but grace, listen to me, grace sets you free. Not free to do as you please, but free to serve God. Truth is, this is what we don't realize. We, we think when we're living in the world, we're free. That's what we think. 
And the enemy has done a really good job of convincing us that I was free when I was in the world. And the minute I met Jesus, it seemed like life became, you know, slavery. Can I just share this with you? You just don't know this yet, but the enemy had you under his slave system and he was slowly leading you to a place of destruction. And what you don't understand is, is that Jesus sets you free from the chains of the enemy and he loosed you from that in order that you might love him and serve him and understand what true abundant living is all about. Romans 6, post it guys, starting with verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Well, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the ones slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that a form of doctrine to which you were delivered, post, and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So you weren't set free to practice sin. Can I just tell you this? When you received the grace of God, you weren't set free to go sleep around with everything that has a skirt on it or every guy that has a six-pack on him and suddenly feel good about it because I got my paper. Jesus didn't die so we could go out and get drunk and get drug addicted. He didn't die so we could go live and be cool with the world and at the same time somehow be cool with God. Grace did not come so you could go to all the revelry and lasciviousness and still raise your hands in the house of God. That is not why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die so that you could go to the big party and get sloshing drunk. Jude 4 posted, For certain men have quept crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's actually, the Bible says, in latter times, people who will twist the grace of God and leave you with the opinion that you can literally keep on sinning all you want and you're good with God because you pulled down your fire insurance. Let me tell you, this is what I've come to believe. Sin is not bigger than the cross. Sin is not bigger than my God. I don't care what it is. Sin has to yield to the grace of God. Where sin abounds, the Bible says what? Grace doth... Don't you tell me, well, it's just, it's just my nature and I can't get over my nature. Then you've not met the grace of God, which enables you and strengthens you and sets you free. I've been set free from the world. We sing that song and it's in me. I don't need you anymore. I don't need it anymore. You say, but I'll be lonely. Oh, no, I'm not. I've got one inside of me who never leaves me nor forsakes me. I'm never lonely anymore. I can lose it all. You can take away my house. You can take away my cars. You can take away all my accounts. Ain't much in them, but you can have it all. You can take it away. The government can call us as Christians illegal. We could be shut down for preaching the truth. I'm telling you, I can now go to a field and declare the grace of my God. And it don't matter to me anymore. It just doesn't matter. And then finally, enabling versus empowering. And I'm coming down to a conclusion here. And this is the good news. All of this stuff I just said is, is bringing us, this is why the gospel is good news. The grace of God doesn't enable you. It doesn't enable you in your sin. It doesn't enable you in your current life. It doesn't enable you in your defeat. Some of you, even in this room right now, you're feeling defeated. And, and it's not that you don't want to do right or you don't want to avail yourself or that even though you don't love God, but you're just so defeated. And, 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 and sometimes it gets twisted because we think God somehow enables us in our defeat. Can I tell you, the grace of God doesn't enable me. It empowers me. It empowers me. Post that, guys. 2 Corinthians 12. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Anyone ever felt like your sidekick was the devil himself? I mean, he was following you everywhere you went. Everything that was happening, it seemed like he was there on the spot. Paul said, I, I got it. 
that way too. He said, it happened lest I be exalted above measure. Next. Concerning this thing, I pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Isn't that so true? God, if you would just get me out of this situation, if you would just get me out of this place, if you would just get me out, I could really love you and serve you better. If you just bring me loose, I could do better. But this is what the Lord said to him. My grace is what? For you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'll rather boast in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, grace defeats the enemy. Folks, I'm preaching a victorious gospel to you in this place. I'm just telling you, we defeat the enemy. Grace causes you to overcome all things. It gives you victory. You can conquer and be more than a conqueror. Let me tell you, I'm not, I'm not serving a God that just helps me to get by. I'm serving a God that will take me over. Not just break through, but break through and enjoy the land. Not that the blessing will just come upon me, but that it will overtake me. God wants to favor you in every area of life. He wants to empower you to win. To win in your finances. To win in your relationships. To win with your health. To win in your destiny. And most of all, to win with the enemy. The devil doesn't win. God wins. God wins. But we've been twisted to believe that somehow grace just excuses me to just get used to my defeat. I, I don't accept that. And, and the Bible certainly doesn't teach that. Well, you say, you say, well, pastor, how's that going to work? Last verse and we're done. Post it, guys. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Let me give you a little background here. I'm t they're trying to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're trying to rebuild the temple. Everything has come against the people of God to stop them from doing this thing that God has asked them to do. Can I just ask this? Has God ever asked you to do something, to be something, to live something, and it just seems like everything has come against you to do that or be that or live that? Am I the only one? Do you know how many times I read the verse that says, you know, be ye holy for I am holy. There's only one of two things you can do with that verse. It's either there to frustrate you or it's there to exhort you to something that you've not walked into yet. But I've looked at that before and I've said, Lord, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, man, you're, you're asking of me of things that I've never done before. I've never been there. You're asking me to trust you in areas of, of well, even relationship and finance and pastoring and health. I can go down the list. Everything you're asking me to do things and be things and live things that, Lord, seems so far beyond what I can do. Do you know who you're looking at here? So there's the rubble. And, and, and he and the, the whole country is trying to rebuild the house of God and everything's coming against them. How do you overcome this? How do you do this? And, and this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Post the next one. And then he says, what are you, O great mountain? In the Bible, every time you see the, the imagery of, of a mountain, it usually means a, a difficulty or a challenge. You know, Jesus said that you would speak to this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. And, and, and what he was saying is you speak to your problems. But all of a sudden they're faced with this problem and it's a mountain of a problem. And this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. He says, begin to say this. Who are you, O great mountain? Who are you, sin, that so easily besets me? Who are you, temptation, that always ensnares me? Who are you, challenge, that God is leading me into? Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with what? Shouts of what? What? Grace. Grace. Grace to it. Post it, guys. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, next, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also, what? Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Listen to me. Listen to me. When you see 
a Christian prevailing, when you see them not capitulating to the wiles of the enemy and the schemes of the world, when you see them overcoming sin, when you see them breaking out of addictions, when you see them breaking out of bondages, when you see them sacrificing just about everything they have to do something for God, when you see them rise up to accept the call of God on their life, when you see them suddenly overcome that mountain, it was because the grace of God was activated in their life and everybody who looks at them cannot say they did that by their own hand, but they did that by the hand of the Lord. Are you following me? Because it ain't about you and it's not about me. It's about the grace of God, which causes supernatural power and abundance to come to us to prevail in every instance. Isn't that cool? But here's our problem. We're naked. And we don't even know it. I'm telling you, we're being led into a time period when I believe our nakedness, if it doesn't get covered now, our nakedness is going to be seen by all. They're gonna, the world's going to look for answers and it's going to look to the church and all of a sudden they're going to find out we don't have our clothes on. They're, they're really no better than we are. They don't have anything to say to me. This is the moment. For you to avail yourself to the grace of God. Hallelujah. Stand with me, will you please?